0: Thank you. We all love to hear about victory, don't we? We all love to major on the moment that a victory is won and then then bask in the endorphins that follow. But what is it that makes the victory so sweet and so special? Perhaps that it's been hard fought and that there were moments when you weren't sure how it might play out. don't know how many of you were watching the Scotland game on Thursday night. We are the nation of glorious failure. In in football terms, of course. Uh, A Scotland win would have meant qualifying for the first major tournament in 22 years. 1998 was the last one. I was 19 at the time. For those of you that want to do your maths. uh, I had long flowing hair, no wrinkles. I was yet to be married. I didn't have any children at that stage. I had probably even yet to become uh, an adult, really, in my conduct. And, and winning 1-0 with one minute to go, it looked like Scotland just might do it. But Scotland is Scotland, and so they have to make it complicated. Upsteps a, a Serbian striker to score a goal with one minute to go and put a giant question mark over the idea of victory for the Scotland team. For those of you that know how it ended miraculously, Scotland won on penalties. And they will be attending a major championships next year for the first time in what will by that stage be 23 years. We all love to hear about victory, but but often what makes the victory so sweet is the fight and the battle, the determination and the perseverance to hold on to the very end in the midst of lots of many victories and even some apparent losses. We're three weeks uh, left uh, of our Revelation journey. We've just looked at uh, chapters 13 and 14. the, The big picture view of the overarching reality of the devil's mission to destroy every single aspect of God's plans and God's purposes. What are some of these? Well, when God raised up a nation to be a light unto the world. The dragon, that is the the devil, the great enemy, the Satan, the dragon raised up leaders and nations to enslave the people and kill them. When when God sustained a nation so that it would bring forth the promised saviour of the world, the dragon, that is the devil, the, the, the deceiver, that is Satan, attempted to kill the child who would grow up to be the hope of the nations. When God in Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life to atone for for my sin, for your sin, and ultimately for everyone's sin who would receive him, this dragon thought he was killing off the only true hope for humanity's redemption. When God in Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to the throne of heaven, defeating death forever and becoming the first fruits of the resurrection, For everyone to see that if they called on his name, that is they put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, they too would be raised to everlasting life. Well, when that happened, the, the dragon was kicked out of heaven and thrust down to earth to wage war on the church. That was Revelation 12. I mean, who says the Bible is dull? Come on. And then when the dragon realised that he he couldn't win through force because the battle is now won, it's won in Christ, he was literally hell-bent on deceiving as many people as possible, leading them into false religion, false worship, things that had been part of the nations, of course, for generations, for millennia before. But, But what's the purpose? So that many might reject God's way, God's word. They might... Reject it in favour of the lusts of the flesh, that is, the pleasures of the world, the pursuit of possessions and, and the pride of people's hearts. Those who refuse to follow that life, well, the dragon raised up leaders, governments, nations that would try to silence them and to destroy them. That is Revelation 13 and we see that reality in the early church. Some of the greatest tricks of the devil that he's ever played out on humanity, uh, for example, to convince them that a life, uh, life is more important than truth, that holding on to life is more important than holding on to truth. And therefore, to hold on to life, people have to compromise on truth. He's also, one of his greatest tricks is, is to convince the people that the ultimate victory was still up for grabs. When the truth is the devil is overcome, the word says overcome by the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the sacrifice and the word of our testimony. What is our testimony? Declaring that shed blood and the victory found in it. If chapter 12 is the big picture overview of the devil's plan and chapter 13 is the antichrist empires of the ages where masses were captivated by the ways of the world. 16 and 17 from the main focus today were brought down into the culture and into the lived out reality of life here on earth. Now we remember though that ours is the victory in Christ, Amen. We talked last week about how we live in the victory today. We touched on Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. If you've had a chance to read that in the past week, it's an encouraging, inspiring, challenging word. That is the victory today. That's how we live out victory. But one of the main reasons we can live out the victory now is because we know of the assured victory to come. That gives us confidence and courage to live out the victory today. So Revelation chapter 17 verse 14, um, such an important verse for us to look at today when we think about victory because a lot of what we read today will come across perhaps not like victory but we remember the ultimate end game. Revelation 17 verse 14 it says that these will make war that is the kings of the earth um, against the lamb but the lamb will conquer them because he is lord of lords and king of kings lord of lords and king of kings those who uh, with him are called chosen are called chosen and faithful getting their tongue tied there those who are with him are called chosen and faithful That reminds us of the ultimate truth of Revelation. Even though the kings and the empires of the world will fight against everything that is holy and righteous and godly and good. And that is epitomised primarily in the people of God on earth and how they live and how they carry that truth. Even though they make war against the Lamb, the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Next week, we're going to concentrate primarily on the victory. That'll be so good to get to that point, amen? Um, perhaps we would say on the blowing of the final whistle, uh, where the celebrations unfold as the time clock is stopped and the full reality of victory is finally realised. But before we get there, we have, to, we have to examine the mess for what it truly is. In a sense, it's like treating a wound, To treat a wound, you have to clean it out before it can heal. It's like the realisation in order to embrace the saviour and be born again, you must first acknowledge that you are dead in your sin and you need to be forgiven. We love to jump to the ultimate victory and we will get there. But first we must acknowledge the lived out temporary reality. Let's look at some key points of the text of Revelation 15, 16 and 17, which will help us understand what unfolds prior to the victory being realised in its fullness. If you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4, Revelation 16, verse 1, and then Revelation 17, verses 1 to 7 and 12 to 14. There is lots of detail in here. And again, today's purpose isn't to delve into the finer points of what every little detail represents. We don't have the time for that, but rather to draw out the core truth and meaning of what John is trying to convey. So Revelation 15 verses 1 to 4 says, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. And I saw... Something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Nations, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Then on to chapter 16, just verse 1 for now. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And then on to chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit uh, to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold jewels and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witness to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Down to to verse 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is lord of lords and king of kings, those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. There's loads in there, and we've obviously skipped over the finer details of the different kinds of judgments that are poured out with the bowls. And you can look at them yourselves, and and they will parallel a lot of what was uh, written about the the trumpets. And you'll also see dynamics, of course, of the Exodus plagues in there as well. Our purpose today is not to delve into the finer points, but to look at the, the core truth and meaning. Our readings start and end with this sense of victory, that place that we are called to live out of and the truth we are called to hold onto. 15 verses 1 to 4 capture uh, that victory in a sense, um, but also within the context of God's judgment. The awe-inspiring sign in heaven—the wrath of God about to be poured out. Now we know that it's not poured out on those that are sealed with the Spirit. That's been the consistent voice of, of revelation: that when the wrath comes from God, it doesn't fall upon God's people. When the dragon and the and the the devil and the beast—all the different images—when when they are given uh, the the ability to to. Uh, to challenge and to persecute, then that can come upon God's people. But when it's God's wrath, that does not fall upon the sealed of God, those who are sealed with the Spirit, but it falls upon those who have defied and denied God and embraced the world system of the beast. The people of, of God are seen standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, what is this future tense picture or or reality remind us of in biblical history. Perhaps back to the moment when the people of God stood on the shore of the Red Sea with um, the the beast empire of Egypt at their back. Again, we would maybe phrase that as the antichrist empire of Egypt because it was standing in place of and in direct opposition to God and therefore to God's promise found in Christ. So they're at the people's back, and and the pillar of fire of God is at their front, and here they stand on the shore of the sea, about to cross it. Just as these plagues, as we've mentioned, mirror what we see uh, from ancient uh, Israel in Egypt, they're about to be poured out on those who have denied and defied God and Christ. What happens? Well, the people break into song, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And what is it about? It's a song about the justice of God. When we think about justice, perhaps we tend to settle on, on one side of the, the meaning of justice. Perhaps our personality, perhaps our experience, perhaps even our preference and our worldview will, will cause us to fall on one side of the definition of justice. One side would be that justice frees people from oppression, that it brings new life to a person who's been wronged. The other side would be that justice brings judgment on the one who caused the oppression, that caused the pain, that that crossed the line and broke the law. What we see time and time again in, in the scriptures is that true justice cares about both of these dynamics. For those who have faithfully held to God in the face of persecution, that takes us back to uh, to chapter 6, verse 10 of Revelation, when the martyrs are crying out, how long until we receive justice? To those who have held faithfully to God in the face of persecution, well, this chapter, the chapter 16, the pouring out of God's judgment is that answer to their question. For those who have perpetrated evil on, on others and those who have defied and denied the God of heaven. For those who aren't sealed with God's spirit, justice is poured out on them. And this is something that we, we struggle with today. Like, we have to be honest about this. This is something that contemporary culture and even within the church people struggle with it today. Perhaps more so than any other point in human history. This idea that just because people choose to reject the God of heaven, that there would be a consequence f- for that. But perhaps we, uh, when I say we, I mean the, the wider church, perhaps we've lost the sense of just how offensive it is to God for people to reject the one who has given them the chance for new life. Perhaps to reject the one offensive, to reject the one who gave them life in the first place. The one who, from a place of perfection in heaven, the Bible says he emptied himself and came down to earth to willingly die so that they might live. Perhaps we've lost the sense of just how offensive it is for God to hear that. And then we contrast that with those who have acknowledged in themselves who they are, that they are sinners in need of saving, that they have acknowledged Christ for who he is, the only way, the only truth, the only way to life. The greatest and most humbling truth, actually, is that these people don't receive the penalty that a just and holy God has every right to impart. They don't receive the penalty because of the work of Christ on the cross and their response to it. And so the bowl judgments in chapter 16 are poured out. And it's interesting to note that bowls are first mentioned in chapter 5, verse 8. Now, these bowls hold incense. And what is incense in this context? Well, it's the prayer of the saints. And we could say that this is the cry for justice that, that every single saint has cried out when they have encountered injustice throughout the history of humanity. And so one facet of God's justice is revealed as the bowls are poured out on the earth. Many questions are, are raised in the interpretation of these bowl judgments. Are these distinct end time events as the text would imply or are they simply a repeated description of the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8 and 9, but perhaps just with greater emphasis? One of the challenges of Revelation is how we read it in terms of its chronology. Uh, Is this something happening uh, in terms of Uh, unfolding step by step, or is it simply John repeating the pattern but adding greater emphasis each time? We see that, for example, when Moses was writing about creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that he goes back over creation and adds detail and dynamic into, to repeat and to clarify. It is unclear, and we have to be honest about that, but those that are futurists and even those that are historicists would, would say that this moment here would be a distinct end-time judgment. Others would, would disagree. Others, whether they be preterists, partial preterists, or even uh, idealists, would perhaps say this has happened or that it's just a, an allegory or a figurative uh, description of, of life. What is clear... What is clear here is that, as Ian Paul, the the commentator, writes, that the possibility of repentance is fading from view. Just as Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 20, there comes a time where humanity um, is without excuse, that God has done everything he can to get people's attention. And I would argue more than we deserve. And yet, Chapter Nine, Verse Twenty. We read this a few weeks ago. The people didn't repent of their works. They didn't repent of their worship, the worship of that which was in place of Christ and directly opposed to Christ. And yet God is slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in love. You you can draw out all these truths that we read through the Old Testament. God won't force people in to heaven against their will. He won't force them. What becomes of of love if it becomes something other than freely chosen? What becomes of eternity if it is given to those who don't want it or to those who want to be their own God in eternity? What becomes of eternity if those that don't want God's picture of eternity bring want to bring their own false gods into eternity. In, in some circles of today's church, it's becoming increasingly fashionable to think that God won't really do what he said he would do. But where does that leave us with our reading of scripture? If he said he would save us, do we hold that with a loose hand too? In the same way that we would hold the parts that he said he would judge? I suspect people who, who, who feel that God won't be that kind of judge don't want to hold the idea that he saves us with the same level of loose hand. Even if we don't like it, my point would be who are we to pick and choose? Finally, chapters 16 and 17, they introduce us to what seems to be a new character. Just when you thought that the dragon and the beasts and, and the locusts and, and the, all the different imagery that we've had thus far was, was more than enough. Well, there's one more figurative picture used by John as, as we get close to the end of this incredible book. It's a character that has actually been around since the earliest days of human society and it takes its name from the first city, the first city who built itself up on the basis of defying and denying the God of heaven. She's referred to here as the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth and it's it's worth unpacking that title so that we don't misunderstand what that means how can we understand what that means? Well, let the text speak for itself. The text says that she is Babylon the Great. She is, in essence, the spirit behind all of the defiance and denial throughout the ages. She has led the leaders of the earth, and therefore all who have followed those leaders into, the Bible says, sexual immorality. What does that mean? Well, we understand what that means in a human context, between human to human, that God has a picture for sexual conduct, one man, one woman, in a marriage context. But when we look at it this way, in this, in this uh, text here, it simply means that those who should have and could have been part of the bride of Christ, who were betrothed to the groom, that is Jesus, those who should have laid down their lives metaphorically and in some cases literally for the one who laid his life down for them. All those who didn't do that, who chose another way, who were seduced by this woman. That is, that is the character, the woman, Babylon the Great. 17 verse 18 says that, that this is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth, who were drunk on her wine and who were unfaithful to God as a result of it. And yet, even in the midst of all of this, the victory is declared and is seen and is known by all whose names are written in the book of life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. Revelation 17, verse 14, the Lamb who conquers the kings of the earth and all who followed them is the same Lamb who conquered uh, the hold of, of sin and death over all of them. If only they had received the gift of grace when they had the chance. You see, that's why we care so much about the gospel today. That's why we as the church push back against everything that opposes God's truth, God's holiness. That's why we try to lead people out of lifestyles and lead them from the pathway that leads to death. We try to lead them onto the narrow road, the narrow way of Christ and to life. Because we believe God will do all that he said he will do. And and our love for these people compels us to speak up and not remain silent. We're coming up on the final victory of Christ. We're about to hear about the final judgment of the dragon, the beasts, this Babylon, the great. And it's only with a confidence in that victory that we can take seriously the battle that's gone before it. Now, this calls for courage. It calls for sacrifice and it calls for the power of the Spirit of God. And most importantly, It calls for love as God defines love. Love, a love that points the way towards eternal life and away from the path that leads to eternal death. Join me, let's pray, for courage in these last days. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that whilst this is so dramatic in its depiction and description, we can draw your truth from it. We can understand what John was trying to convey with what he was writing. And therefore it's a warning and an encouragement for us today. Even though it was written 2000 years ago, it's a warning and encouragement for us today. Father, help us. Help us to live in that place of victory and help us to lovingly draw people from the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light. Amen.